Let's open our Bibles to the Pauline Epistle of Hebrews. It should say in your Bibles, for the title of this book, the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. It's willful ignorance that anyone would say we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. All you have to do is read the book of Hebrews, and you know Paul wrote it. There's so many internal proofs, and everyone's understood that until they went to school. It takes a seminary degree to figure out that you don't know who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews has a primary theme, and that's the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel over all aspects of Old Testament religion. The purpose of Hebrews was Paul trying to encourage the believing Jews in Judea that they should not backslide and return to temple worship of Moses and the temple and priesthood and altar and sacrifices there in Jerusalem or of synagogue worship, that they should remain firm to the Lord Jesus Christ whom they had followed in baptism. It was a huge temptation and difficulty for them. They knew that the altar in Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, the worship there, the furniture there, the word of God that was read there, kissed there, and wore there on arms and foreheads, was God's scripture, were God's priests, was God's altar, was God's sacrifices. And so it was hard for them to leave it, and then to leave it and find out that family hated them for it. And so they suffered some measure of persecution for it. So Paul wrote this epistle to encourage them that everything that was in the Old Testament, every angle and aspect of it was inferior to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And once you understand that and you read through Hebrews, it's an exciting book to read. He takes, out, he takes the prophets out in just two verses, in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Then from verse 3 on to the end of chapter 2, takes out angels. Then he takes out Moses. Then he takes out Joshua. Then he takes out the priesthood. He takes out Aaron, takes out Levi. He just keeps doing that all the way, all the way. We'll be looking for some jewels in chapter 13, if the Lord will be merciful to us today. Hebrews was written to Jews from a sacrificial system of religion, offering sacrifices, living sacrifices, shedding blood on an altar. And so those those readers here had more understanding of it than we do, and I mentioned this to you three weeks ago when I preached a few of these jewels. Hebrews was written to Jews from a priestly system, so they appreciated a priest more than we do. Those of us who were raised as Baptists, no matter what kind of Baptist, you know you don't need a priest. And so it's hard for us to envision the importance of a priest. Remember, there's only one book in the New Testament that ever mentions Jesus as a priest, and it's the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews does it 26 times. And then when it comes to blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and when blood is shed, the life is leaving. Hebrews emphasizes the blood of sacrifices with 20 occurrences. Romans only has three. Ephesians only has three. So you can see that the emphasis is to the Jews who knew a sacrificial system of religion and a lot of bloodshedding. And we can't appreciate it as much as they would have, but we can try. To qualify as a jewel of Calvary requires more than the exaltation of Jesus Christ and making him superior to some aspect of the Old Testament. It requires his death because that's why it's called a jewel of Calvary, or a jewel of Golgotha. 
or a jewel of the skull. It's got to involve his death. It's just not his superiority to some aspect of the Old Testament. Calvary is the place of the principal component of the greatest transaction in the history of the universe. The greatest transaction in the history of the universe was not Bretton Woods, was not the League of Nations, was not the United Nations, was not anything any government has ever done in the history of the world or all of them combined together can amount to what took place on Calvary 2,000 years ago. The transaction that satisfied the, the justice, the perfect justice, the holy justice of Almighty God. We are so blessed to be on this side of the cross, to see it clearly, to understand it, to have a book like Hebrews that we can understand in our own language. I doubt if Hebrews was written in English. It was written by a Hebrew to Hebrews. But we have it in our language, and we're so blessed, and we're able to look at it and understand it. Calvary is the great place of the greatest transaction. And we want, we're here today for this. This is what binds us together. We're very different in many other ways, but not when it comes to this. This is the most important thing. And this thing about the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us to satisfy the wrath of Almighty God is the greatest bond that there ever can be among men. As we read in Revelation 12, opening the service earlier, they overcame the devil, they overcame the pagan Roman Empire, they overcame the papal Roman Empire by the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lamb that changes men's lives. And by the word of the testimony that they held, which was the gospel about the Lamb of God. And they loved not their lives unto death. They were willing to lay down their lives because they loved that transaction that took place at Calvary. Do you love it? Or do you love your life? Your life cannot even be measured against that life. Your life cannot even be measured against that death. My life can't be. All of our lives combined. All of our lives combined and cubed. Cannot even measure against that transaction. And so we're here today to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to remember his death until he comes for us. And he's coming soon. Okay, the first jewel that I want to just spend a minute or two with you is in chapter 1. And there's only one in chapter 1. There's great stuff in chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is a string of 14 of the best verses in the Bible. But there's only one jewel, and it's only a few words long, And it's in verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a jewel because he said, it says by himself. And so we love that. And we hate the fact that the world in their Bibles takes those words out of Hebrews 1.3. They don't have by himself in their Bibles, but we do. And we thank the Lord for those words. And we know those words are true because it was by the obedience of one that our sins were washed away and we were made righteous. When he had, by himself, purged our sins, he sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. His redemptive work by dying to save us was over. He purged us, which means he made us pure and clean, free from moral or spiritual defilement, defilement, sin or evil. And we thank the Lord for that. Now I want you to notice something a little, a little extra before I go to the next jewel. I want you to remember what I taught you last Lord's Day. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name. Right. 
which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. And so I wrote you this week to make you think about that name of Jesus. Whatever name God gave Jesus, he didn't give it to him until he exalted him. The name of Jesus had been given to him 33 and a half years earlier. It is the dignity associated with the name Jesus and his titular names, titles, titles of Son of God and Lord. That at the name of Jesus, now there's attached to it, Son of God. Now there's attached to it, Lord. Now there's attached to it, dignity that he never had when he was on earth in his state of humiliation. Now I just want to share with you, since we're in Hebrews and we're working on a jewel, I want to show you what the next verse looks like. Because he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, it's not the end of a sentence, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Ah, so I get to give you a little bit of the evidence that there's a name associated with Jesus that's beyond Jesus. Many people were named Jesus. Jesus was Joshua, but they weren't named the Son of God. Because let's read. I, gotta, I, I said that I interrupted so that I could read it again to you. I happen to like verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels. When was Jesus made better than the angels? When he was born of a virgin? No. When was Jesus made better than the angels? When he ascended up into heaven and was crowned at the right hand of God and they had to report to him. When he was made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What is the name? For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. What is our faith? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 5. That's the faith that overcomes the world. It is that combination. Jesus of Nazareth, otherwise known as Joshua of Nazareth, is God's Son. And it's that combination together that he's given him a name which is above every name, above Michael and above Gabriel and above every name that is named in heaven or in the earth or under the earth because there's only one only begotten Son of God that sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is his personal name, but now Jesus is never said alone. It's Jesus the Christ. It's Jesus the Lord. It's Jesus the Son of God. Or it's all of them put together. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we have a jewel here. The jewel is by himself, and he was given an inheritance, and he was made better than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor, but that's getting ahead to chapter 2, and he's called the Son of God. And if you were to keep reading, that name of the Son is huge. Yet have I set my Son upon my holy hill of Zion, and my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And verse 5 continues, And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And then he says, the angels are just flaming fire servants. He says in verse 7, Of the angels who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire, all they are is spirits that burn in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I hope I've said enough. If I haven't said enough, you need to read Psalm 2. You need to read Acts 13. You need to read Romans 1. And you need to read Hebrews 1 to find out that the name of Jesus takes on its importance when Jesus is declared to the universe to be the Son of God. It's not just the syllables of the name of Jesus. Many people had that name, and it didn't signify anything yet for 33 and a half years. But, oh, it sure did when he got up into heaven. Right. And then it signified a great deal, the Son of God. Let's go to chapter 2. That's a jewel. By himself, purged our sins. We're going to celebrate his death today. And he did it by himself. Right. You're not going to add any of your blood to his blood. You're not going to add any of your obedience to his obedience. We're not going to add anything to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because he did it by himself. He purged our sins and he sat down because the work was complete. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2. Now some of you have been taught these things before by me. But that's okay. I still get excited about them. Amen. Why don't you? Right. I'm sorry to share some things again. I'm going to share some that I haven't. I hope I can bring some things new and old from God's Word. Hebrews 2, verse 6. One in a certain place testified, saying, This is David in Psalm 8. One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Paul is quoting David. Paul is still quoting David. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Right. So the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 8, these words, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You've crowned man with glory and honor, and you've put all things under his feet. And if we were back in Psalm 8, we would find out in Psalm 8 that beasts of the field and fish of the sea are mentioned. And so then we would think, if we didn't have Hebrews 2, we would think, well, God's given man the authority over his creation so that he can tame an elephant and make it stand on a ball so that he can tame a dolphin to make it jump out of the water for a fish, for a sandwich. And so we would think that if we just read Psalm 8. You would. Right. You would. You would just think God's elevated man. What is man that thou art mindful of him? You've elevated him over this creation. And, but then you get to Hebrews 2, and the Apostle Paul just gives us a whole new angle on it. Right. And that angle is not beasts of the field, although they're included it's everything and everyone, including all angelic powers, principalities, and every name that is named. Amen. And so, this is Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. And Paul adds and says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, since Psalm 8 says all, and thou hast put all things under his feet, there in the first part of verse 8 here, Hebrews 2, 8 here, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, is from Psalm 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Right. We don't see everything under the feet of man. There's things outside of man's control. But we see Jesus. Amen. But we see Jesus. And right. so here's the Apostle Paul with the enlightenment of an apostle giving us an understanding of Psalm 8 that we ought to celebrate. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 8. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor. That's the glory and honor. Not because man can make an elephant stand on a ball because for a bag of peanuts. It's because Jesus Christ is over everything that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. What's our jewel? Tasting death. Tasting death. Anyone here that wants a taste of death? Jesus tasted it for us. Praise his great and glorious name. We don't ever want to misinterpret Psalm 8. We want to understand it just the way Paul gave it to us right here. God's highly exalted Jesus and crowned him with glory and honor. They're in the middle of verse 9, and you know when that took place. It took place in Revelation chapter 5, when the Lamb of God appeared in heaven for the first time and took the book of the covenant out of the hand of God and was crowned with glory and honor, and three choirs burst forth in praise to the Son of God. That's when it took place, and you know about it. And we're get, it's given to us in detail in our Bibles. What does death taste like? That he should taste death for every man, every one of his elect, because the context right here is, is calling them brethren and those that are sanctified and set apart for God's holy use. It, it, they're called the sons of God in verse 10. They're called the sanctified ones in verse 11. They're called his brethren in verse 11. They're called the brethren in verse 12. They're called the church in verse 12. And in verse 13, they're called the children which God gave him. That's the elect five different ways. It's the elect of God. He tasted death for the elect of God. What does death taste like? The book of Job tells me that death is called the king of terrors. Right. So you get to drink a drink of the king of terrors. The king of terrors in a glass of overwhelming anxiety. The king of terrors. That's until the Lord Jesus Christ drank it. Then what's it called? Then what's it called tasting death? Going to sleep in Jesus. That is the huge difference of him drinking the cup for us. Now it was two years ago today. It was two years ago today I preached a sermon to you that I love the content and that the delivery was inadequate. It's my fault, but it's not the content's fault. And the content was the cup of Christ. And it was all about the cup that he drank. And it was all about the Roman Catholic chalice. And they don't have an idea about the cup. They don't have an, no one has an idea about the cup that Jesus Christ drank. Right. And then he sat down because it was all over. And he drank the dregs. He, t- he tipped himself back and shook every drop out of that cup. And the Bible wants us to know that about what Jesus did for us. Right. He tasted death for every one of us so that we don't have to drink that cup. We go to sleep in Jesus. We get to get out of prison. What's your prison? It's that stinking body you're in right now. You had to take a shower in the last 24 hours, I hope, because it stinks. It's just a rotten body. It's a prison. We're trapped in it. We get to escape. And that body goes to sleep in Jesus because the Lord's coming back for that body to put it back together powerfully. We know the cure for every disease. We know the cure for every ailment. Yes, we do. We know the cure for every ailment. And it's to escape prison and to let that thing go to sleep in Jesus. But our spirits don't go to sleep in Jesus. Our spirits are more alive than they've ever been before because he drank the cup. He tasted death for us to destroy the power of death. It is no longer a penal punishment for us. It's to get rid of this. And so it can be planted in the ground so a new plant can come up. Totally different. He tasted death. We don't have to taste it. 2 Timothy 1.10, 
He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel because he's abolished death. But yet people still know, they, yeah, they die, they go to sleep in Jesus. They get rid of their bodies. But it's no longer a penal punishment. That was through Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're in this jewel of Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9, but we see Jesus. How did he taste death? He experienced death. He drank the cup of suffering of death. He died for the elect to pay for their sins, which he could not do without flesh and blood, which leads us toward the next one. If you want to listen to a sermon, it's to go back and find October 7th of 2018 called The Cup of Christ. The exaltation and perfection of Jesus Christ is seen in His reception in heaven. It says in verse 10, For it became Him. This glorified Jesus Christ to what He accomplished for us. It became Him. When something is becoming to a person, it adorns them. It makes them beautiful. And it makes the Lord Jesus Christ beautiful, what He did for us. So it says in the last part of verse 9, He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He tasted it and drank the cup for every one of us, for it became Him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is made perfect by the suffering he went through for us, because he drank the cup for us, and then, because he took on flesh and blood, he's able to commiserate with us every day of our lives, right. because he's got our nature. And so I'm going to leave off the verses 11 through 13 and jump to the next jewel. The jewel that we just covered is he drank the cup. He tasted death so that we don't have to. You say, but I still have to die. I just don't get it. Well, if your heart was on the Lord, instead of on this world, you'd get it. Right. And the more that your heart is on this world, the less you're going to get it, the more you're going to fear death. The more you can get off this world and onto heavenly things like we're supposed to, then Paul would say it's far better to depart and be out of this place. Right. Let me out of this prison is what the Apostle Paul would say, Amen. because his heart was in the right place and he was looking at the right things. And to the degree, to the degree we let the roadrunner get our attention. Listen, that's the highest thing I can say about your life. Bugs Bunny and the, who is it? Bugs Bunny and the roadrunner? Something like, it's the highest thing I can say about your life or my life. Right. That's absolutely worthless. It's going to, in one second at death, it absolutely disappears totally. And one week later, no one's ever going to remember your name. Not even the guy cutting the grass that has to look at it. Get over yourself. Get into him. Right. He tasted death for us. Amen. And the more, the more we want to be in heaven, and the less we want to be on earth, and the more we recognize earth is painful. Life is painful. Life's a... Yep. <laughs> a beach then the more we can appreciate Jesus Christ dying for us. Right. And then we don't look at death as bad at all. It's an escape. It's an escape out of this body. But if you're not walking with the Lord, you don't have that confirmation of the Holy Spirit that he's your Father in heaven and that Jesus Christ is going to meet you with an outstretched hand and take you right through that curtain, and so you don't have that comfort. And so that, that's why we have a church. We have a church to get together to remember the Lord's death until he comes for us, Amen. to know that he tasted death and to encourage each other Let's live and die in the Lord. Amen. Let's help each other do it. Let's help each other do it well. You can do it well. Verse 14. For as much then, 
given all that just went before us about Jesus Christ being made a little lower than the angels, then crowned with glory and honor. For as much then, and us being the children of God, and us being his brethren, and he's not ashamed of us as his relatives, for as much then, tying these passages together and these two jewels together, for as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Remember, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. The Lord Jesus Christ was given a flesh and blood body because we have flesh and blood bodies. And at communion, we remember flesh and blood. His body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us because of this. The devil had claim over our flesh and blood bodies from Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord also punished us with two other forms of spiritual death, of spiritual depravity and the second death of eternal death. But the devil had power of life and death over us because we had sinned against God who had said in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So the Lord Jesus Christ came in a flesh and blood body, resisted his temptations in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and defeated him. And the Bible tells us, and it tells us in 1 John 3, 8, this is why Jesus came the way he came. He partook of flesh and blood that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death. We, that means we shouldn't be afraid of death anymore because Jesus has defeated death. So death shouldn't trouble us anymore. It's an escape from prison. Amen. And from all of you, because everyone up there is going to treat you better. Please think about it any way you want to think about it. No matter how nice we are to each other, we're not as nice as it's going to be up there because they're sanctified, the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, we haven't met any perfect church members yet down here, but they are up there. And every way, every angle that you look at it, it's better. And so he partook of flesh and blood. So when we break the bread and when we hold up that piece of bread, that's representing his flesh. When we hold up the cup, that's representing his blood. I know this is very simple, but notice God's an eternal spirit, but God took on a flesh and blood body to destroy the works of the devil by going through death himself. Because death was the curse. But Jesus took it and tasted and drank the whole cup of death for us so that we're delivered from it. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. That included even the Old Testament saints who had to keep going through the ritualistic sacrifices over and over because of fear of death. But we've had death destroyed one time forever. You know, they had to watch death all the time. I don't care how much you love that little lamb that you took that you took for Passover or the lamb that you took down to the priest, they're going to cut its throat and bleed it while it's bleeding. You know, I want you to think about bleeding and bleeding, just like the last time when I got in this pulpit on this subject. Do you remember? The combination of bleeding and bleeding is ugly. But our lamb didn't bleed. But he did bleed. And the Bible wants us to know that difference. That he didn't bleed. As a lamb is silent before shears, so he opened not his mouth. 
and he died for us to destroy the power that the devil had over us because of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and deliver us from the fear of death who because of it were subject to bondage. Boy, when, you get a, when a person's afraid to die and they'll do anything, they'll pay any amount of money in order to be saved from that fear. Roman Catholics have taken advantage of it. Every religion takes advantage of it, including the Old Testament religion. But we're not afraid of death anymore because the Lord Jesus has delivered us from it. Because you and I are flesh and blood, Jesus had to take on flesh and blood. And he did. He took on a flesh and blood body to die for us. Where are the keys of death and of hell now? In the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right. He's spinning the keys of hell and of death. They're nothing to him. He can open and no man can shut, and he can shut and no man can open. If you fear dying beyond anxiety of the unknown a little, you need this gospel. And you need to think about it. You need to sing about it. And you need to read about it. And you need to pray about it. And you need to ask the Lord, Lord, give me Hebrews 2 from verse 6 to the end. Give it to me. Give me those two jewels inside. The jewel is flesh and blood. Communion is when we remember the incarnation and death of a flesh, blood redeemer. We'll skip chapter 5. The one in chapter 5 I gave you two months ago. We'll skip chapter 3 and 4 because that's just about the curse of God upon the nation. There's nothing in there about the death of Jesus Christ. We'll skip chapter 6 because that's about the promises to Abraham, but the death of Christ isn't there. And we'll come over to chapter 7. There's 13 chapters of Hebrews. Eight of them have jewels in them and five chapters don't jewels of Calvary. Those five chapters have jewels. They're just different kinds of jewels. So we come to chapter 7. Now chapter 7 is a long chapter, and it's got a great deal about the priesthood, but there's really only one jewel in it. We only get Calvary in this chapter one time, really. Now you could say, well listen, as soon as you mention priest, you're thinking about his sacrifice. That's not good enough for me. Because remember, it's my definition. It's not the Lord's. It's mine. The jewels of Calvary in Hebrews. And so it's death. And so we come to the last three verses. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Amen. And amen. amen. Okay, we have in the last part of verse 27 that Jesus Christ offered himself once for our sins. He didn't have to offer for his sins. He offered for the people's sins. And so that makes it a jewel of Calvary because Calvary is implicit, implied and required in verses 26 through 28. Look at this priest. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and higher than the heavens. You're nothing like those things. Right. Are you glad you have a priest like those things, yeah. since you're not like those things? Does God accept someone like that who happens to be his son as well, but he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners, and he's higher than the heavens? Amen. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not need to daily and continually offer sacrifices like Levitical priests, 
He didn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins, for he is holy and separate from sinners. The Day of Atonement, it's this time of year, right now. Yom Kippur, the day of which they've corrupted, the Day of Atonement given to Moses. But anyway, it's a, it's a somewhat resemblance to it. But the Day of Atonement, the priest had to kill a bullock for their own sins. Then they had to kill one of the two goats for the people's sins and take it in and put it on the mercy seat. The one time a year, they got to go in there. But our Lord Jesus Christ didn't have to do that for his own sins, so there wasn't the need of that bullock. And he offered his blood once for all sins of his people. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. That's the book of Leviticus. Because all it is is descent from Levi and descent from Aaron out of Levi. But Jesus Christ came later. In verse 28, when it says, The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law. Do you know what that means? It means that Psalms was written after Leviticus. That's all it means. Since the law. About 500 years. 400 years. From Moses writing the law about where the, how the priests came out of Levi. Levi was the head of that tribe. And out of that tribe there was Aaron. And the priests had to come from Aaron. You know, if you came out of Levi, but you didn't come from Aaron, then you got to cut wood and haul water. But if you came through Aaron, you got to be a priest. But that's in the book of Leviticus. It's in Psalm 110 and verse 4, which was read to us in the back room this morning. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so since the law came out an oath, the Lord hath sworn, that's an oath, and he will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what kind of a priest was he? Totally different. He didn't have to offer for his own sins, and he only offered one time. And he was holy, he was harmless, he was undefiled, he was separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And that's higher than any priest that's ever been. Thank you, Lord. The jewel is, there's no infirmity, but he's consecrated forevermore. Made holy. When you're consecrated, you're dedicated to the work of God and made holy. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was that. We come to Hebrews chapter 9 for another jewel. We're looking for another jewel. We skip verse 8 because it's, a, it's comparing the two covenants. It doesn't have the death of Jesus in it directly. So we come to chapter 9. The first 10 verses of chapter 9 are going over the furniture of the Old Testament. He, Paul's listing the furniture of the tabernacle of Moses which then became the temple of Solomon, which then became the temple of Zerubbabel, where they had this furniture. And so the Apostle Paul explains that furniture meant just a symbolic picture of the fact that God was not open to sinners. They couldn't go to God. Shut off and sealed off. And Paul said that that form of worship, which was practiced in this world for 1,500 years, from 1,500 B.C. until Christ, it says in verse 10, that Old Testament religion stood only in meats and drinks and divers, washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation because no one would pick that religion. So it was imposed on them for 1,500 years because it was the Lord sending his church to elementary school. Right. And I never wanted to go to elementary school when I could ride my bike all day. It was imposed on me by the man sitting right there. 
it was imposed on me to go to school. And so the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's the explanation I'm giving you. For 1,500 years, the church had to go through cycle after cycle of priests and cycle of father, son, grandson, great-grandson, going through this religion imposed on them. Because who would want it? Killing all those animals, all that blood, doing it again every year because it never put away sin. And so we come here to 9, and Paul's explaining all that in verses 1 through 10. Then he says this, But, Hebrews 9:11, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, not those bad things imposed, but good things to come, they were future tents to the Old Testament, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not Moses' little tent, but God's sanctuary in heaven, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Entirely different from anything down here on earth. Even if Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple looked better than Moses' tabernacle, it still didn't look anything like heaven in comparison. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Okay, so that's our jewel here, eternal redemption. It's not redemption for another year. It's not redemption for another year. It's eternal redemption. And he's obtained it for us. Eternal redemption. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats. Remember, there's two goats. One's killed and one's a scapegoat to be taken by a fit man out into the wilderness. Calves are bullocks. And by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. That's the holy place in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He wasn't trying to get eternal redemption. He had already obtained it. He wasn't offering eternal redemption to anyone. He obtained it for us. And he's got it in his hand. He's got it. It's his possession. He's got eternal redemption. It should give us eternal consolation. It should give us eternal comfort. It should give us eternal assurance. Jesus obtained eternal redemption for us. And so it's a jewel. It's a jewel to look at that eternal part and see, because you just flip back here. Um, It says in verse 7, into the second went the high priest alone once every year. So he only got to go into the holy presence of God once in a year. So that was your annual, you know, that was your annual redemption. So God didn't kill you for the next 365 days. And if you didn't go in on the next day of atonement, he's going to kill you on day 366. But Jesus went in there one time and obtained eternal redemption. And you know, we do this once a month. Maybe we should go above and beyond and do it more often. We do it once a month, but we're not sacrificing anything for sin. We're just remembering the one sacrifice that obtained eternal redemption for us. Amen. So this, we repeat this one, but it's remembering eternal redemption. Right. Right. Eternal redemption. Verse 13 for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, that means if you did those things, you didn't die that day or the next day for not having done them. That's how serious the Old Testament was. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What effect should Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us have on our lives? How should it change us? I mean, they went through all those motions every single year just to live another day, to live another year. They went through all those motions. What effect should it have on us? Verse 14. 
how much more shall the blood of Christ purge our conscience? But I want to point, let's remember the context. This is Paul writing Hebrews, and the dead works are Old Testament sacrifices. If he went into the holy place in heaven and obtained eternal redemption for us, why go through the Day of Atonement every year? If the Day of Atonement could keep, if the ashes of a heifer, ashes of a heifer could purify, how much more the Son of God going into heaven with his own blood. Amen. And he offered himself, he offered himself without spot. When you read Hebrews, don't skip a single word without spot. Does that ever show up in the Old Testament? That the Lord kind of liked perfect sacrifices? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus was without spot. And he offered himself without spot to whom? To to God. Thank you, Lord. He offered himself without spot to God, and God accepted it, and we're made accepted in the Beloved. I don't need to tell you 15 through 17. You already know that jewel. That jewel is that God terms the gospel covenant of everlasting life as the last will and testament of God. Remember? The last will and testament of God. When a man is a grantor or a testator in a, in a will, he writes down, I want my house to go to so-and-so. I want my three cars to go to so-and-so. My bank account. And so he lists his assets. He transfers them on paper. He testates, this is what I want to have happen to my to my assets and my inheritance when I'm dead. But that piece of paper while the man's alive doesn't mean anything. And so God God promised eternal life before the world began. God promised it to Abraham with an oath. God promised a covenant priest in Psalm 110 with an oath. But someone had to die to put that last will and testament into force. This is a jewel. This is God taking the gift of eternal life and in just three verses, 15 through 17, comparing it to the last will and testament. I've written down, my elect get eternal life. But how does it go into force? Because just the promise isn't good enough, especially with a holy God that has to have a sacrifice of death. For the wages of sin is death. So the testator had to die, but God can't die. So we had the Lord's Supper to remember that God sent His Son in the form of sinful flesh, but without sin, to die for us with a flesh and blood body. And so it went into force. So those, and I've been over this too many times, you should be able to get in this pulpit and do a better job than me with verses 15 through 17. Verse 16 says, For where a testament is, that's the new covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So the grantor of the will has to die to put it in force. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. But God sent his son and died for us to put it into force. It is so sweet, it's only three verses long. It's 15 through 17, but it's powerful. Where do we get involved? How do you get involved in a man who sits down with a pen and a piece of paper and says, I give my house to Johnny. You're not involved. It's his will. It's his good pleasure. According to the good pleasure of his will, he decided to give me his house. And God decided to give me a house above and you a house above and promised it. And how did that will go into force? The testator died in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a jewel. We're making progress. Okay, come over to chapter 10. I've I've already done 18 through 23. Three weeks ago. Do you remember? Okay. And I've already done three in chapter 10. Do you remember? 
I hope so. Let's come to the division in the book. Do you remember in Romans, at the end of, 30, at the end of chapter 11, Paul goes off for four verses, 33 through 36. He just goes off on who can ever teach God, who can ever be God's counselor, and all the glory is his, and all things are to him, through him, for him, of him. And, and he, he says, Amen. Because he's just given us 11 wonderful chapters of God saving us. And, and then he says, I beseech you therefore. So there's an application of the next five chapters, 12 through 16, of how we ought to live because of what he did for us in the first 11. Ephesians is written the same way. One through three ends with an amen. And then four says, wherefore, let's live this way because of what he did for us in chapters one through three. Here, here's that kind of a division in Hebrews. It's, it's more obscure because it's not a chapter division. And it's between verses 18 and 19, and yes, it does have a therefore. And I want to go right into that, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's come back to verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. I want you to notice what is, what is the means of us being able to go boldly into the presence of God in verse 19. His blood. What is it in verse 20? His flesh. Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood opened up the veil. There was always that veil. You know, the writers... The historical writers tell us that the veil was four inches thick. It was a palm width. Four inch, have you ever seen a tapestry four inches thick? And it was 60 feet high. It was put in place by a team of horses. Incredible veil, rent from top to bottom. Do you know what a four-inch piece of tapestry would sound like when it was rent from top to bottom? You say, I once ripped a quarter-inch piece of canvas, and it sounded pretty loud. Well, we're talking four inches, not a quarter-inch. God ripped that veil from top to bottom because of the blood and because of the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you appreciate this verse? You cannot appreciate this blessing unless you imagine the terror of the Jews about God. They were terrified. Only the high priest got to go in there once a year, and he didn't dare go in there without blood. The high priest, once a year, with, with blood, to go into the presence of God. They were terrified. And he's writing Jews. My mom and dad, and with my brother, we were little boys, and they're teaching us how to pray. We're, we're two, we're whatever. We're three, we're whatever. doesn't matter. They're, they're telling us, because we're Baptists. We don't need no priest. You don't even need us. Just get down your knees and pray. You can go straight into the presence of God. See, we take that for granted. We take that for granted because we never grew up like this. Those, word, those words are incredible to a Jew. Mm -hmm. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest? We don't even know what the holiest is. They knew what the holiest was. You couldn't go behind the veil. Even the high priest couldn't go behind the veil. But we can. Mm -hmm. Having therefore, brethren, boldness. Yeah. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, not that dead old way of the old covenant and a sacrifice once a year, 
but a new and living way because Jesus is in heaven interceding for us and he's consecrated this new way for us by his death and the tearing of his flesh. And so we've got flesh and blood. Any one of us, our children, we can teach our children, you don't need a priest, you don't need a pastor, you don't need a parent, you can go straight into the presence of God. Boldly. You can run there anytime you want to. We can go into the presence, we can go into the holiest when we're driving. We can go into the holiest when we're in the shower. We can go into the holiest when we're in bed, in our PJs or whatever. We can go into the holiest boldly because of this jewel. What is this jewel? Boldness to go into the holiest by the blood and the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he's consecrated for us with his death. Please stand with me.